Hi, this is Pastor Grayson Gilbert from Missio Day Fellowship of Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm thankful you found our sermons, and I hope that they've been an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. This sermon was, however, preached to and for the people that God has entrusted to me here. We would ask that if you are in our area, we would encourage you to come and worship with us, but that if you are not in our area, know that these sermons, while valuable resources, are simply no replacement for your own local church. And so in light of that, we would say you are to submit yourself to the faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. We've come now to the point in this series where we're able to talk about the many blessings and benefits of what it means to be saved in Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to know that every one of these blessings that I'm going to talk about today is all premised or based off of the fact of what we've heard so far. And what I mean by that is very, very simple. As you followed along in this three-part or four-part series, or if you have not, we've outlaid it in four basic sections. We've done the problem, the solution, the command, and the blessings. So today is obviously the blessings. What that means is that you must be able to embrace all of those other aspects of the Christian faith in order for you to inherit the blessings that we are granted through Jesus Christ. So you must know and embrace the problem that we've learned in full. Ultimately, you must come to agree with God on the basic fact that everyone is a sinner deserving of God's wrath and an eternity in hell. Humanity is not basically good, meaning you're not good, neither am I. That is the essence of what it means to embrace the problem. Every last one of us has gone our own way. We have rejected our creator. And apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ, you are helpless. That's the problem. The solution then, again, we must come to embrace, is only found in Jesus Christ. We must know the gospel, in other words, in order to be saved. We must believe that Jesus Christ is truly the Son of God who took on human flesh. He lived a perfect life in obedience to the Father. He died on the cross on our behalf, and then he rose again and defeated sin and death on the third day. It's purely by grace through faith in Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection that you can be saved. No other solution offered by the imaginations of men, in other words, will suffice. They will not fix the condition of mankind. It is only through what the scriptures would call the gospel that you can be saved. In light of this solution, through the gospel that God has provided to us purely by grace, Matt preached on last week that man's response is one of repentance and faith. If you recall from his sermon, repentance and faith are ultimately two sides of the same coin, if you will. It means that you turn from your former ways and you trust completely in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it's more than a just simple acknowledgement of the facts, if you will. Genuine repentance and faith, they not only have the facts of the gospel correct, they not only agree to those facts of the gospel, but ultimately there's a life that shows they trust in those realities. There's a love of that truth. There is a hope in that truth. And ultimately, a life that reflects genuine belief in that truth. And so if you do not have that, you are not a Christian. If all these things are present, though, meaning you know the problem, you embrace it, you see Christ as the only solution to the problem that all of humanity has, and you have embraced the heed to repent and believe, the scriptures would say, unabashedly rather, that you are a Christian. Because of this, There are many blessings and benefits that are simply given to you or bestowed upon you as a result of having saving faith. In other words, again, all of it is pure grace. 
That is the beautiful reality of what it means to be saved. And it goes well beyond your wildest expectations and your hopes simply because of what God has done for you on the basis of Jesus Christ. In other words, what I mean by that is simple. These, these blessings are literally given to you or granted to you as a result of what Jesus Christ has done. They are not earned. They can never be earned. And beloved, if you have genuine faith, they can never be lost. That's amazing grace. And that's what I have the privilege of being able to share with you today. But understand, what I'm going to cover today is really just a short list. There is no possible way that in an hour I can convey every single blessing and benefit that you now have if you profess to hope and trust in Jesus Christ. It just is impossible to do. I'll put it this way. Theologians have found in just the book of Ephesians, in chapters 1 and 2, over 150 different blessings. I'm going to show you 10, okay? So what I'm going to do today is just walk you through a few chapters in the book of Romans, and I want to draw them out briefly, and I'm going to spend a little time on each of them because I'm giving you a high-level view of this, but I want you to see that all you have to do if you can go to the book of Romans is you can show people this. The reason for this is simple. The book of Romans draws out what we know as the indicative, which is, if you have it written in your Bible, for those of you who've been here long enough, what? It is... Fact or reality, yes, this is purely what God has accomplished on your behalf. It's not something that you can accomplish, in other words. It is purely granted through the life, death, and Jesus, or resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, turn with me to Romans 3, 21 through 25, and we're going to see the first blessing. And we talked about this a little bit in the solution because it's unavoidable. But I want to show you, obviously, the many blessings we've been given through Jesus Christ. And the first one that we have received ultimately is this reality called justification or this reality that we have been declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ and not by works, as Paul would say. So look at verse 21 in chapter 3 of Romans. Notice what the Apostle Paul says. Again, it's page 120 in your pew Bible if you don't have your own. The Apostle Paul just simply writes, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're going to stop in 23 and come back to the rest in a second. Now, just prior to this section in Romans 3, Paul has just been showing the problem of all mankind. He has made this case that every bit of mankind is in rebellion to their maker. They've all been, as he says, shut up under the law of sin so that they are judged guilty. In other words, no man has an excuse. And he says, as a result of this problem, all are condemned for their sins. They have no righteousness of their own. They cannot come before God and be found free from the curse of sin and death simply as a result of what they do. He says, whether Jew or Gentile, everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone. But now at this point, what does Paul do? But he starts to make a shift. Now he makes a shift ultimately to show that God has provided the solution through the person and work of Jesus Christ, through this doctrine we call justification. Now he draws a contrast in verse 21. If you look down and notice this, he shows it's not through the works of the law, that the righteousness of God has been manifested or made known. He says, rather, the righteousness of God has been demonstrated through what? Through faith, yes. Through faith in Jesus Christ, he says, for all who believe. In other words, what he's showing us simply is that 
Righteousness is not something intrinsic to you or I. It is not something that you can do to earn. You cannot obey the law of God perfectly in order to earn it. You cannot be counted righteous on your own. Even after coming to a genuine faith in Jesus Christ, the reality remains the same. You do not have a righteousness of your own. Rather, he says, it's the very righteousness of God that comes exclusively through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, what he's talking about here is this reality called imputed righteousness, a righteousness that is counted for you because of what Jesus has done. He takes his righteousness and he covers you with it. That is the only way you can be granted righteousness before the Father. It's exclusively by grace through faith. Why? He says, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, no matter what you do, no matter how hard you may try, you cannot earn it. You will always fall short of this reality. You were guilty and dead in your sins, and purely on the basis of faith, God has counted righteousness for you. Now look at verse 24. I want you to see how this plays out. He says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Now, this is really where the message of the gospel comes to the forefront to show that these blessings God gives us are all of grace, beloved. He says that we have been justified, and the term here is a legal term. It's speaking to a declarative reality or a fact that God has granted simply by saying it is so. Now, imagine a courtroom, if you will. The law has shown that every last one of you is guilty in the courtroom of God. You're guilty. You have no hope to be free from the curse of sin and death. There's no way around it. But as Christ stands in your place, as he died the death you deserve, as he took the wrath that should have been yours, instead of you being declared guilty, God says you're innocent. Why? Purely because of what Jesus has done. Purely because of Christ. You did nothing to earn it. In fact, you actually did the opposite of earning grace. You've done everything in your power to earn wrath and condemnation. And that's why Paul says precisely that it is a gift. But notice how he says it's accomplished. He says that this declaration, this declarative reality that God says you are righteous purely because of Christ is by grace through the death of Christ on the cross. That's what he means when he says that God displayed Jesus publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. The reality of what he's speaking towards here is that on the cross, there was a payment that needed to be made to take place for your sins, in other words. That's what propitiation speaks of. You were guilty. You owed God for your sins. You couldn't pay that debt. But Jesus died on the cross, and he paid it for you. And it says, through the death of Jesus Christ, the blood of God himself, rather, the God-man, satisfied that payment in full. The wages of sin are death, he says, right? We, We covered this reality before. Well, who could pay those wages but only Jesus Christ? The point that he's making here is that this declaration of righteousness, it is attained only through faith based on what Jesus Christ has done in his death and resurrection. It cannot be given any other way. That's why it's a gift, right? If it was something you could earn, what would it be called? Would it be called a gift? No, because you can't earn a gift, right? The Paul point or the point Paul makes, rather, is quite simple, but it's incredibly profound. You can't help with it. 
You cannot provide a righteousness before God. Only Jesus Christ could cloak you with his righteousness that you might be free from that guilty verdict. And that's why I say it's an incredible blessing that can only be accomplished through Jesus Christ, through his death, through his resurrection. That payment could only be made by him. Only he could satisfy the wrath of God. But the idea goes well beyond forgiveness. The reality of what's been accomplished through the death of Christ is that what's granted to you by faith is righteousness. In other words, remember the problem, right? Every last one of us is unrighteous. Every last one of us cannot be free from that condition. But God, by covering you through grace with Jesus Christ's blood in his death and resurrection, ultimately looks upon you and says, you have now been declared righteous. Amen, brother. I hear a thank you, and it's like, yes. I mean, do you not understand how amazing that reality really is? If every last one of us could come to grips with how justification, that declaration of righteousness matters, how much it actually matters, we would be falling on the floor and weeping in thanks. We, honestly, we would be blown away by God's mercy and grace every day of our lives because that righteousness is not something that will ever be something you can do. Every bit of it's by grace, beloved. Every time God looks on you, if you have genuine faith, what he sees is the very righteousness of Christ. You and I, even on our best days, we sin, we have wayward thoughts, we commit deeds we know are worthy of death. And yet, because Christ died for us, we are counted righteous. We know every single sin is worthy of judgment and wrath, and yet half the time we do it anyways. Yet if you are in Christ, if you have genuine faith, you are covered by the righteousness of Christ. He looks upon the vile, guilty sinner, and he says, not guilty. That's amazing. And that verdict, beloved, will never change if you have genuine faith. It will never change. It can never be undone. That declaration of righteousness will not depend on you. You can't earn it. You can't strip it away. When you come to believe in Christ by faith, it's a once and for all declaration that God makes where he says, now the vile sinner is deemed righteous. He's brought you completely out of one realm into the next, and he said that you have been justified. In other words, there's never going to be a moment where you need to be declared righteous yet again. Never. Why? Jesus accomplished it. Jesus paid your debt. Jesus lived the perfect life. In his life, death, and resurrection, every bit of it was sufficient not only to pay for your sins, every bit of it satisfied the Father. Every bit of it he could look upon and see, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, and he stands in your place. That's why the gospel is good news. You and I on our best days do nothing but screw it up even more. Right? This is a reality of what we've been trying to drive home these past several weeks and what we're going to drive home in the next part of the series. When Matt takes you through things like Roman Catholicism or I talk about Islam, what we're going to do is show you that in every other world religion, because you can just take this simple grid and apply it, they never will believe Christ is enough. 
they will never believe that he fully satisfied the wrath of God. In other words, they're going to add something to it and say that at the end of the day, somehow it is still up to you. Matt and I are telling you that if it's up to you, you're doomed. But that's precisely what qualifies you, beloved, for God's grace. Every bit of them, whether you're an atheist, whether you're a vaguely spiritual person, the reality is that in some way, shape, or form, you believe that it's up to you. But the reality of the gospel is that it declares it is not up to you. It cannot be up to you. What you are left with when you put it in your own power and ability and might is hell. That's what you earn. That's the wages you have earned. But if you trust in Jesus Christ, that declaration of righteousness is final. You won't be deemed unrighteous. It won't be taken away from you. It is a gift freely given to those who believe. That's amazing grace. But because of this reality of justification, we have so many different blessings that accompany it. Once God has looked upon the sinner and declared them righteous by faith through Jesus Christ, what happens is that ultimately we have so many other blessings that are in store for us in this life and the next. And this justification flows right into the next blessing I want to show you. In Romans 5, verses 1 through 2, so if you flip just a page or two, you'll see this. He says that because Jesus has accomplished this, right, because we are now declared righteous before God, Simply through faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Notice what he says here. Therefore, having been justified, right, declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. Right, remember the problem once again. Previously, what we were counted as was enemies. We were at war with God. We had this thing that needed to be resolved called our sin, and it could not be resolved on our own. But through Jesus Christ, that guilty verdict has been cleared. In other words, by justification, by that declaration of righteousness only coming through faith, he says you have peace. You have peace, beloved. What that means is you can rest assured of the fact that God actually credits the righteousness of Jesus Christ towards you if you believe. Right? Think of that reality. Think of all the sins that you've committed prior to knowing who Christ is and what he has done. All the different things you know has earned you hell. All the things that have messed up your life in profound ways. God looks at it and says, not guilty. Isn't that peace? Is there not joy in that simple reality that there's ultimately freedom? You will never have to look over your shoulder and wonder and flinch. You're never waiting for the other shoe to drop. God has fully and finally and freely forgiven you. You have peace with the creator with whom you had war with because of your sin. That's the beauty of justification. It's not some internal sense of peace that depends on how you feel each and every day. In other words, your feelings don't really play into that equation. It is a reality that Christ has accomplished. He says that hostility between you and God has been resolved because you are now in this realm that we call grace. Right? You had every reason to despair before this. You fell short of the glory of God and you knew it. But now, 
the very thing that caused you to hide from God in terror, meaning his holiness, his righteousness, is now something you can look on with pleasure. It's now something you can see and have hope in. It's now something you can see as a joyful reality. Think of the implications of that. You know, just as well as I do, that the moment you sin, God is holy and righteous and just, and he has it within his full power to just strike you down. And yet he doesn't. You have peace with God. Think of that. God, who is perfectly and infinitely holy in the perfections of his beauty and who he is, could rightly strike you down at this moment in this room simply because you're a sinner. But he says, no, the wrath of God has been satisfied in Jesus. Because of what he did on your behalf, he will not do such a thing. He's restored your relationship with him. It will never be undone if you have genuine faith. The barrier between you and God due to your sin is broken down. That's incredible, guys. Once and for all, this reality that Jesus has accomplished is that you have peace. If you don't have peace, you should be wondering why. And what I mean by that is you should be looking at the scriptures and saying, okay, the reality is that this is what God has promised through Jesus Christ. And so if I'm always at internal war over the reality of whether or not there is condemnation waiting for me at the end of my life, either I've completely forgotten what I claim to believe or I'm still dead in my sins. The reality is that it doesn't change from day to day because one day you somehow screwed up and the other you did a little bit better. It doesn't work like that. If you have genuine faith in Jesus Christ, the only thing that will keep you safe and sustain you until the very day you die is that same grace you believed to begin with. Right? There are two different realms of existence he speaks to here, right? There is this realm before that you stood in as a sinner, this realm of wrath and judgment. Right? That's what awaited you in that realm. And all of humanity is in that realm to begin with. There's not some nebulous neutral zone. He says everybody starts here. Wrath and judgment. But the realm of grace is utterly different. The realm of grace is what you've been brought into, right? You've been plucked out of this realm of wrath and you've now been made to stand in grace. And you're not wondering, is God angry with me all the time? Right? You can know, you can have that battle in your mind if you think of him as a petulant father always shaking his finger at you, that no, the scriptures say there is peace with God. Because of Jesus. I have been forgiven because of Jesus. I am free because of Jesus. God is not my enemy. He is my friend. Because of Jesus. Everything that Paul is speaking towards here is bound up in the fact of what Jesus has done. Because of his life and his death and his resurrection... If you genuinely have faith in him, your sin is resolved. It's not accomplished because of you. It's all accomplished because of Jesus Christ. Is that not freeing? Again, think of your best day. Think of your best day. Paul says, filthy menstrual rags. But through Jesus Christ... That stain, that grotesque imagery has been removed. 
your sins are cast as far as the east is from the west. What was ugly in his sight, what was displeasing to the Father, you've now been cloaked in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ and you are looked upon as if you are whiter than snow. Is that not a blessing? You're not trying to earn God's favor. You're not trying to earn peace with God. You've been granted it purely through Jesus. And ultimately, the reason you even have peace with God is because of the next blessing I'm going to show you in Romans 6. Romans 6, verses 4 through 7, he talks about this reality that we have now died to sin and we are now alive in Jesus Christ. That's the reality of this great exchange that took place. So flip with me yet another page. Romans 6, verses 4 through 7. Notice what he now writes. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. Why? So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in the newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Indicative, declarative reality. Doesn't depend on you and I. This is a result of what Jesus has done that he now just simply grants you through genuine faith. Notice what Paul begins of speaking of here. He's, he's talking about being united with Christ in his death and resurrection. And the point he makes here is that when Christ was killed on the cross, if you have genuine faith, you also died with him. In other words, the old man is dead. There's a crucial way this union of Christ plays out, though. He says, just as he rose from the dead, you too rose with him. And the purpose of this is that you might walk in the newness of life. Remember the two different realms of existence I just spoke of, right? There's this realm of judgment and wrath where your sin is counted against you. Then there's this realm of grace. You've been brought from one realm into the next, all purely by God's grace and mercy. That realm of judgment and wrath is also under the power of sin. As an unbeliever, everything you do is tainted by this reality. As a believer, you still have this sin hangover, as Matt's put it plenty of times. But as an unbeliever, everything is dominated by this reality. Remember the gunk analogy he gave, right? Everything is gunkified. No matter what you do, you just spread the gunk around and nobody sees it because the reality is that everybody's just as gunky as you are. All that comes from your efforts is that there's just more and more gunk oozing out every time you do anything. Every which way you go, it touches and leaves the stain of sin. But he says if you were united with Christ in his death and resurrection... You have been moved into an ungunkified realm, so to speak. Right? That realm was gunk. You've been plucked out of that and made clean. This realm is defined not only by peace with God, it's defined by freedom from the power of sin. Sin no longer is this binding master over you that dictates and is your slave driver with the chains and the whips. Everything about you and everything that you do is no longer under the power of sin. It's not saying that you won't sin. It's just simply saying that sin is no longer master. 
And the reason for this is quite simple. As he says in verses 5 through 6, if you look down again, he says, The old self has been crucified with Christ so that we would no longer be slaves to sin because we have also been raised with him. Right? That's what he accomplished in his death and resurrection. There's freedom from that old master. The old you is dead. As, as Paul says in Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The incredible blessing God gives through faith in Jesus Christ is that whoever you were prior to knowing Jesus is no longer the case. They're dead. You're not merely declared righteous, incredible as this is. It's not merely that you are at peace with God, though this is amazing too. Your past life that's lived and defined by regret and sin and foolishness and everything else is no longer part of who you are. It no longer defines you. Were you the drug dealer and the drug user given over to the next high? He says, dead, buried with Christ. Were you the slave to your passions, given over to immorality of the grossest sort? He says, dead, buried with Christ. Were you the gossip, the slanderer, the hate-filled backbiter, the sexually immoral, whatever you want to stretch it as, through faith, dead and buried with Christ. But more than this, raised with Christ. Raised with Christ. You are no longer sold under the bondage of another master. There is this newness of life that is dominated by what pleases God. Why? All because of what Jesus accomplished. He removed the old master. It bleeds right into the next blessing I want to show you, which is just down in verses 17 through 18. The same reality that I already said, we were slaves to sin, but he says now we're slaves to righteousness. Again, this indicative fact, this reality that Jesus has accomplished on your behalf. He says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now, notice what Paul says here, how he defines this newness of life and how it plays out. He, he says the unbeliever, and that's every one of you at one point or another, or perhaps you even still today, he says every one of you was defined by this reality prior to knowing Christ where we're under slavery. We are slaves. What does the unbeliever typically believe that by coming to embrace the gospel, you miss out on freedom? Not the case. You're a slave. Know that. No matter how you stretch it, you're a slave. You're either a slave to sin or, he says, a slave to righteousness through Jesus Christ. No matter how you view it, if you deny it, it doesn't ultimately matter. You're a slave, he says. You have a master, and that master has authority over you, but the reality is that through Jesus Christ, there is a different master He says, through union with Jesus Christ, that's the flow of this chapter here, the fundamental nature of who rules over you is no longer at play. 
If you genuinely believe the gospel, the reality is that your heart has now been bent in a different way. You no longer serve the flesh or the old master as you once did. Your fundamental nature has changed. There's this radical shift of direction that takes place. If you remember, part of the problem that we had in our natural state, the problem as Matt defined it is that ultimately our hearts are desperately wicked, right? Every intent of the thoughts are only evil continually. That's what the scriptures say of our heart. But in Jesus Christ, he says this is no longer the case. There is a point in which you have become buried with Jesus Christ and raised in his resurrection that you have now been transferred from one domain to another, one master to another. And the reality is that he says these men have become obedient from their hearts. Part of what has happened is that their heart is no longer sold in bondage and slavery to sin. They've been freed and given a new master. They have a new delight. They have a new set of loves and affections. It's a complete 180, in other words, like Matt spoke of with genuine repentance and faith. Right? Things have changed. Christ being your master instead of sin means at the core of who you are, your heart, you've now embraced the truth of God's word because there's a radical transformation that God has done. You believe the gospel and now you're committed to the teaching that is attached to that gospel. It's your delight to obey You don't fool yourself into thinking that somehow if I obey, that's what's going to save me. No, you don't don't ever believe that. You look at it, though, and you're like, how can I not obey? And when you don't obey, you feel that shame. You're attached to that reality. The reason for it is because you've been plucked out of one realm and put into another, right? These things have ultimately changed. What you looked at and delighted in before is no longer a thing you delight in. It slowly becomes distasteful. And over time, the Lord is even gracious in that because he slowly reveals these things to you. Imagine, if you would, the full weight and conviction of sin just dropped on you in a moment. Imagine that. But no, little by little, he is content to show you sin that you might put it off and walk in this newness of life. And all of this is because you have been granted another master through Christ. Why do you think you stick out like a sore thumb sometimes, beloved? Right? When you get among old friends, people that you once walked in the the realm of sin with, right? And all of a sudden you just can't do those things anymore. Or they want to go someplace that you know that you can't go to. You have no business going to. The things you once watched, you no longer want to watch. The things you listen to and let feed your heart are no longer things that you let feed your heart. It plays out in the here and now, but it also plays out in eternity. Because the reality of what he means by union with Christ here, playing from death to life, is that there's this incredible reality in that exchange of mastery that now also, I'm sorry, I've completely bumbled up my words here. My point is rather that because of this thing taking place, because of this free grace that God grants us, There's this reality, a blessing that is continually flowing to you and I simply because of Jesus Christ. And that same reality of the blessings flowing from him to us is also what has brought us from death to life. The thing that brought us from an old master being sin to a new master in Christ has now brought us from death to life as well. 
In Romans 6.23, what he just simply states is the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Right, if you recall, through Adam's sin, death entered into the world. Sin entered into the world. And this is a dominating reality that all of us know exceedingly well. No matter what we do, we know we can't overcome death. We can't overcome the power of sin on our own. You and I can try. What does that leave you with at the end of the day? More and more guilt. You are heaping more and more condemnation on yourself. You can try and thwart death, but you know just as well as I do, that's a fool's errand. You can eat perfectly healthy. You can exercise each and every day of your life. And yet the one thing you cannot do is plan for your death. Every one of you on your calendars does not have that marked, do you? Instead, you have the arrogant presumption, like all other men, to mark that you will go to the dentist on Friday. You will do this and that April 15th. And yet the one thing you will never have on your calendar is that today I die. You know, at best, you are toying with realities outside of your control. But the reality of what sin brought through Adam was not just physical death. It was eternal death. The scriptures say this is rightly deserved. These are our wages, our earnings. We reap sin and thus we sow death. But Jesus Christ was the propitiation for our sins. He paid the wrath in full. He says the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. What you and I could not stop, what you and I could not earn being eternal life, you have been freely given by God through Christ. It's a gift, beloved. What it means is quite simple. Through genuine faith, you no longer stand to face eternal death. Again, the wrath has been resolved. There's this reality where even physical death has lost its sting. But think of that before genuine faith, for those of you who trust in Christ, right? There was always this reality where you're looking at death and thinking of your death, not with this weird fondness that Christians tend to do, but you were scared of it. For those who are genuine Christians, what happens is you start to look at death in a whole new way, don't you? It's a welcome reality. I was talking about this with somebody just the other day where all of a sudden now these things have just clicked and they're starting to see it for this first time and it's like, you know, it wouldn't be so bad to die. It would be terrible for everybody else around. Like, I would hate to leave my children without their father or my wife without her husband, but I would go and be with Jesus and I'd be having the greatest time of my life. I mean that. It's like once you start to really apprehend this reality, there's no fear. There's not this fear of death. There's not a fear of missing out. The reality that we embrace as Christians is we know that ultimately when we die, we don't just go down into the grave, but we have the fullness of of life. We are attached to the life giver himself. We don't just fade into nothingness. We don't go down into the depths of hell like the unbeliever. We know that when we die, that the wrath has been satisfied and God freely gives us eternal life. We get ushered into the presence of God himself who is life. Have you ever thought of the reality that eternity is not a concept of time? That's how we think of it because we can't do anything else. We're humans in time. But eternal life is life in the presence of God without the constraints of time. In other words, you just get to experience more and more of who God is for all eternity. 
And even there, I'm already blowing it because I'm talking about it in terms of time again. My point is that you'll be with God without this expiration date that time brings on everything. Just think of that. No rot, no rust, no decay, none of that. No death, no sickness, no pain. No expiration date. The reality is that this is what has been accomplished through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because he died and rose again, you now have life. And he says, beloved, you have eternal life because of him. There's no fear of death for you because death has lost its sting. Jesus defeated death. Jesus paid your debt of sin through his death, but through his life, he gave you the fullness of life. He gave you free access to God who is life. And again, there is no expiration date if you, by faith, trust in what he has done. But the gain that you have is far greater than this life you have now. And this is a reality that the Spirit testifies to your heart as well. It's not just a life without end. There is a quality of life, a newness of life that's directly attached to union with your God. Life is brand new and different, isn't it? Think of the reality that that will only ever get better. That will only ever get better. Everything that you know now is still under this reality where you see sin. You're still having concerns of what tomorrow may bring. You still can suffer through hunger, persecution, famine, all those different aspects. But when Christ returns and he ushers us into the presence of God forevermore and we see our Savior face to face, each and every moment will be a brand new world where we will only experience more and more of the perfect quality of life that is attached to our God. It's a gift. You can't earn that. You can't do anything to receive it. This is purely granted by Jesus Christ and what he has done. It's a guarantee, though, too. Beloved, these are all promises that if you have genuine faith, you can take to the bank no matter what. If you are genuinely in Christ, they are yours because they have been freely given to you because of what Jesus has done. Now turn with me to chapter 8, and we're going to spend the rest of our time there today. We're going to move through it rather rapidly, but I want to show you just how rich this chapter is with the blessings that God has granted through faith. Now the first one we're going to see is that there's no condemnation. Right? This is one of those classic verses that everybody loves to quote, and there's a good reason for it. Paul, after he gets talking about this struggle with his own battle over sin, right, this conflict of the two natures, he just says, praise be to God, right? There is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. The point he, he makes here is rather simple. There's a world-tilting reality, though, attached to it, if you can actually grasp it, because he says you're just fully and freely forgiven. There's no condemnation. The penalty that sin brought, not just physical death, but eternal death, not just those things, but the wrath of God abiding on you, they're all whisked away in Jesus. You're no longer under the act of wrath of God. You no longer stand condemned or judged guilty for your sins. You have been fully and finally freed. In Jesus, there's no condemnation. He says that guilty verdict has been removed. Rather, again, justification. You've been declared righteous once and for all. In every single way, Sin 
is no longer held against you. You don't somehow wake up and you've got this zero in the bank account, that analogy that people use that I, I hate because it conveys a terribly wrong idea, that you can somehow stack up the debt and each day it gets wiped down to zero. No, there's no bank account, beloved. Or if you want to describe it as a bank account, it's a bank account filled with the very righteousness of Christ. Your sin doesn't affect it. There's no condemnation. None. These are things that are declared true if you believe in Jesus Christ because the reality is that he's accomplished it. You don't have to beat yourself up each and every day over past sins that you've committed years and years ago. There never will be a moment where your sin is dragged up and held over your head. Why? Because Jesus took it on the cross. He paid for it. You may face consequences. You may feel guilt and shame over the sins that you commit now. But if you are truly in Jesus Christ, meaning you genuinely believe what he has accomplished in his life and death and resurrection, when you stand before God at the end of all days, there is no condemnation. There's no wrath. In other words, we can have full confidence of forgiveness. There's no rain cloud that hangs over your head because you failed yet again. When you fail, what do you do? But look back to your Savior who died on the cross and took your sin and he rose victoriously from the grave and gave you life. There's no sin so heinous that it can outmatch God's forgiveness through his son if you have genuine faith. There's no license to sin with that, but I want you to simply hear that reality because I know some of you walk around with this guilt that's always attached to your life. You always look at who you were before you came to faith in Christ or even some of you look at your sin now and you wallow in despair because you are always fixated on that reality. Beloved, I'm not here to tell you don't feel shame over your sin because you should. What I'm here to tell you, though, is that if you have genuine forgiveness in Christ, it's genuine forgiveness. You don't need to carry that around with you all the time. If your old self was crucified and you've been raised with him, and he says you have peace with God, you have not been condemned, you've been declared righteous instead... Why do we insist so often on feeling as if our sense of fairness or justice is better than God's here? No. Look at the scriptures and what they declare for you if you trust in Christ. Look at the reality of what God has done. From one scarred hand to the other, he says, your sins have been cast from you. Think of how beautiful that is. I know who I was before I came to Christ. I know the things that were in my heart and mind, and I know the things that are in my heart and mind even on days like today. I know the reality of what it means to be a sinner, full and full. Paul did. Paul looked at it and said, I am the chief of sinners. I am the worst of all men. And yet I have been forgiven through Jesus Christ's blood. I will never look to my own strength or my own ability or my own deeds and use that as a basis for my confidence in Christ. My confidence in Christ will only ever be attached to what Jesus has done. Because if I look at myself, 
All I see is the problem. But if I look at Jesus, I see the solution. I see the blessings. I see the benefits. I see a reason to put away sin. I see a reason to strive after God and to love God because none of what I do can fix my problem. But everything Jesus does has fixed it. I've been adopted. Right? I'm, I'm no longer outside of the family. I've been one who is adopted as a son or daughter of God himself. That's the very next blessing I want to show you, verses 14 through 17. Right? So look down with me once again because I want you to see how important this reality is. There's more going on than I have time to develop, but Paul is talking about the life of one who is ruled by the Spirit of God in this section. That's another way of saying one who is a genuine Christian by faith in Jesus Christ. He talks about this reality that the Spirit has been given to the believer, right? He gives them life. He indwells them. He unites them with God. He empowers them. But notice how Paul frames this section, right? Chapter 8, verse 14. I want you to see that. He says, those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Verse 15, he says, we are no longer having a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but rather we have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out to our heavenly Father. Verses 16 and 17, the Spirit testifies that we are indeed children of God, and if we are children, we are also heirs with Christ. He says, we're not merely then adopted into this family. We stand to inherit every spiritual blessing that God has promised to Jesus Christ. And here he speaks of us even being glorified with him. And throughout the remainder of this chapter, what Paul speaks to is an incredible reality showing the lengths that God has gone to in order to assure you that if you have faith in Christ, you are in Christ. Again, he says this is a declarative reality. What it ultimately shows us through this whole section, and we're going to spend some time here, is that God will not abandon you if you are his child. He will not treat you as the black sheep of the family. He will not look upon you with a mere indifference. If you believe in Jesus Christ and what he has done, and if you have repented and trusted by faith in what he has done, you're adopted. J.I. Packer put it like this. He said it so wonderfully. He says, adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name. But I would add it's even more than just being given the family name. Every benefit of what it means to be attached to that name, to be granted that name and given that name, is now given to you through Christ. Now notice how he breaks this out through the rest of this chapter. Romans 8.11, he talks about the reality that we have a sure helper in the Spirit. He gives life to our mortal bodies, right? He says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now here the idea that Paul speaks to is that there's this guarantee of the resurrection from the dead, but there's also this reality that plays out in the here and now. In verse 10, he talks about the fact that the spirit of man has been given life. Why? Because of the righteousness that is now granted by faith. The same spirit that lives in us, he says, serves as a pledge of the life that is to come. Though we may die, our physical bodies, in other words, will be raised with Christ as he was raised from the dead. It is a pledge or a guarantee of what is to come. 
In another sense, he testifies that we are God's children, which is a way that I would say is assuring of genuine faith if you actually have it. Romans 8.16, he says the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit also assures us of our inheritance to come. Romans 8.17, he says in light of this same reality that the Spirit is our helper, that he confirms the work of Jesus Christ, there is this guarantee that you will not suffer wrath and eternal death, but ultimately there is this hope in the life to come. There's a hope in the reality of the resurrection, but not just the resurrection that you will face in the body, but the redemption of everything in all creation because of what Jesus has done. He was the first fruits of this reality. He said, because of this, everything will be redeemed. There will be a new heavens, a new earth, and more than this, God will even carry you through this life to the next if you are his child. In other words, if you are genuinely in Jesus Christ, you cannot lose your salvation. The point of what he's making here is that while you are weak, the Spirit of God is strong. While you suffer, the Spirit even takes such things and causes them to be seen in light of eternity. He says, in other words, they seem insignificant compared to the glories that will come. While everything else around you falls apart at its seams, you have a hope if you are in Christ that transcends reality itself because you know that all this is going away anyways. At the end of the day, what comes next is far better than anything that has ever been here on this earth. You know the next life will be filled with an endless joy and peace with God. Even as you're tempted to give up, what does the Spirit do but cause you to persevere? Why? He says because you are God's child, because he has adopted you, because he has sealed you, because Jesus Christ paid your debt. You go back to the book of John because Jesus will not lose one whom the Father has given him. The reality is that every bit of life and death is hurtling towards the glorification of all things and redemption of all things. And the guarantee for the genuine child of God is that he will keep you safe. Then think of this in Romans eight twenty six and 27. He says, even as you don't know what to pray, and you kind of bumble your way through it, the Spirit will now take your prayers and shape them into good prayers. Right? We've all been there. Can you just remember that where you're like, Lord, I don't even know how to pray for this. That type of prayer, according to this passage, is one that the Spirit will use to intercede on your behalf. Right? He will actually take and fashion your prayers so that the Lord will accept them. Where you don't know how to pray, the Spirit does, because he can discern the mind of God. Where you have no clue what to ask for, or how to even begin to ask, the Spirit of God is already at work doing these things. And little by little, as you continue to read the Word, and the Spirit now dwells within you and shapes your heart and affections and mind around the truth of God, he also will take and develop your prayer so that they will become better. Now think of that. I remember when I was a young Christian and I was trying to pray and I'm stumbling through half of it. And yet the reality is that as I continued to read the word and as I continued to give to the discipline of prayer, God was kind in all of that. I'm sure there's prayers now that I still can look at and say, this is pro probably a God-awful prayer. And yet the Spirit intercedes. Then consider the reality that Romans 8, 28 and 30 speaks of. Right, The heading that the scriptures often will give you is that God works all things for good. 
right? Romans 8, 28 talks about being called according to the purpose of God. It's all bound up in the inheritance of what is to come, that glorification, that reality that will be raised with Christ. He predestined us, verse 29, to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Little by little, day by day, hour by hour, your mind, heart, and affections, and everything else are being transformed into the very likeness of who Jesus Christ is. So if you have a genuine faith and trust in the gospel, what he says is, I'm not content to leave you there, right? I will take you with all of your sin. I, I loved you while you were yet a sinner, and yet I'm going to not leave you there, and I will transform you into the very image of Jesus Christ. Little by little, you will continue to bear more and more resemblance to your Savior. So when you grow tired of all the different things that happen or the things you delighted in before, what do you think it is but this reality playing out? He will slowly mature you. He will clothe you with compassion and grace and dignity if this is not even a person that you're granted to normally being. Why? Because this is who Jesus was. Slowly and surely, God is sanctifying you day by day in order to reflect the image of Jesus Christ. In all of it, what is that but grace? Then consider that this is not even the end of the blessings God has in store for us. Romans 8.30, right? What does he say here? This is incredible. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So think of that. Long before you even had a thought of who Christ is, God predestined you to receive his grace. And then one miraculous day, he actually called you forth from the darkness and brought you to light. And then one great day, he promises that just as he declared you righteous, he will glorify you and bring you into his eternal kingdom where you will remain forever. No bit of it is from you. It's all a declared reality that is a gift given through faith in Jesus Christ. And if this were not even enough, God just assures us that nothing in creation can prevent us from receiving all of these blessings if we have genuine faith, right? The rest of the chapter here, he goes into excruciating detail to show how God is so immeasurably kind and gracious to us that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Think of that reality. How many of you are freaking out because you're thinking, I've got to stock up my ammo and provisions for the next world war that breaks out? I mean, seriously, people are doing it. If God is a justifier of the unrighteous, who can condemn you? Think of how often people are looking at you as if you're just a complete idiot. They look at you as if you are the fool. They will condemn you happily. But if you have genuine faith in Jesus Christ, who cares? Who can condemn you? Who is the unjustifier of the just? No one. He says your inheritance is so secure if you have genuine faith in Christ because of what Jesus has done that nothing can stand in the way of God's love, right? No tribulation, no distress, no persecution, no famine, no nakedness, peril, not even the sword. He is the one who keeps us safe. He is the one who keeps us saved. He is the one who keeps us waking up each and every day if we have genuine faith and keeps us in the faith. It's all a free gift of God's grace. And at the end of it all, he says, this is why we are deemed more than conquerors. It's nothing you do. 
Not a bit of it, beloved, is from you. It's all from start to finish a work of God by grace that is granted through faith. Simply because God looked at the miserable sinner in the muck and he said, I will declare you righteous because you have trusted in Jesus Christ. Every one of these blessings and more is granted to you. There is so much more. But the point I'm making through all of this is that this is the major difference between Christianity and every other religion or belief under the sun. It is the grace of God. It is what Christ has actually done and who he actually is. All this is premised on knowing and believing the problem by seeing Christ as a genuine solution and actually heeding the call to repent and believe. Without this, you have none of it. What I mean by that is simple. If you do not believe things as God has dictated in his word, the very facts that we must come to believe in, but if we don't treasure them even, none of the blessings here are yours. But consider how so many people will run from all of this because they think they will lose out. Is not everything you've heard today in just this short time incredible? And so what do you do with people who continue to hear all this and they reject it? Who, as Lewis would have put it, are content making mud pies in the slum when there's a holiday at sea offered. Beloved, you show them grace. You show them kindness. You show them love. Ultimately, you show them Jesus Christ. So many, I know, are worried if they are actually equipped to go out and evangelize because you think that you have to be able to defend each and everything. But the reality is that if you believe the gospel, you're already equipped. If you can look at it and say that I know I'm a sinner, I know that the only way I can be saved is through Jesus Christ. I know that he calls me to repent and believe the gospel. And I know that God has given me innumerable blessings purely through grace in what Jesus Christ has accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. Beloved, you can go out and share that with anybody. We make it so much harder than it is. What Matt and I will continue to show you over the next series of weeks as we apply this to different religious beliefs is that it's really this simple. It really is as simple as showing the problem, the solution, the commands, and the blessings. That's all you need. And so with that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for just the purely good news of the gospel. And in every way, shape, or form, it is grace that you have not treated us as we deserve, but that because of what Jesus has done in his life, death, and resurrection, we can rest assured knowing that our sins are forgiven. We know that we have inherited eternal life through him. There is no condemnation. Everything we have is a gift from you. And so I pray that that would radically change our lives that we would look upon your goodness and your graciousness and that we would see the ways in which we so freely sin, 
the ways in which we so easily lose hope, the ways we so easily and tritely treat grace as if it is a commodity rather than the gift that it actually is. Show us more and more of who Jesus is and what he has done the rest of our lives that we might genuinely reflect him all the more, that we could show to a dying world who our Savior is, that we can show them you are indeed a loving and gracious God. I pray for your people here as they go home today that you would comfort them with grace. You would remind them of who Christ is. But I pray for those who do not know Jesus Christ, that do not believe the gospel. You would cause a hunger that cannot be satisfied by anything else, a thirst that cannot be quenched through anything, that they would ultimately come before you and trust for the very first time that Jesus is enough. We pray these things in his name. Amen.